This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Goblins from Montclair, New Jersey. And I'm Alan Tucker from Northern Virginia, the Catskills of Western Loudoun County. <laughs> Catskills of Western Loudoun County. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy New Year. Let's start with getting to know you. Do you mind telling your history and your background at a very high level? Real high levels. Probably the most important things that happened to me in a real estate brokerage when I went into corporate America. And I've got a brother who's, you know, I think one of the smartest guys there is because he's got a EEC and he was doing, you know, electrical work in electrical engineering. And I was at MCI and he said, there's going to be a confluence. Something is going to happen between real estate and technology. Today, they call it a computer room. He says, it's going to get bigger and they're going to call it a data center. Light bulb kind of went off. And then from that, after leaving MCI, I went back into uh, corporate brokerage, worked at CBRE for a period of time. And honestly, met, I still think, one of the most engaging guys to really just inspired me. I think that's the keyword inspired me at a young age, Peter Gross, doing a lot of data centers in Northern Virginia and Herndon, Virginia, before anybody was even thinking about Ashburn, Loudoun County. And Peter honestly took the time and spent several hours with me at 544 Herndon Parkway, where Frontier Communications, Global Crossing Exodus, Cable and Wireless, all one company, all went bankrupt. And we built a uh, data center inside this 144,000 square foot building, about 60, uh, about six megawatts. I, I, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, about 80,000 square feet, maybe. So it was low density, but Peter gave me great inspiration. I'm like, man, I may not be an engineer, but I understand the business side. And from that, a lot of my clients really relied upon me as far as the executive level to cut through the bullshit of what the engineers were saying because they weren't engineers. So that's kind of our weird. First, our first start is the 2022, Nabil. We did it. There you yeah. go. There you go. You know, it's just how it happens, Bill. But, you know, it's really about, you know, what we're talking about, you know, inspiring the futuristus, you know? And I thank Peter Gross every time I see him. And it was very important what Peter was able to communicate to me as a uh, young business professional many, many years ago. So I give kudos to Peter Gross as well as Brian Ropes with Roseden because they were both at EYP. What was the turning yeah. point for you? You grew up and your major was economic and finance. And, and real estate was your core expertise. And I understand like Peter and Brian, these yeah. guys coming into your life and being yeah. your mentors. Did you have any interest prior to that in technology or connecting the world? Or it was just the inspiration from those two people being at the right place, the right opportunity intrigued you to get into the space deeper? Great, great question. So I was at a small brokerage firm and a boutique brokerage firm, probably I got to think about 92, 94. And this crazy game came out and nobody knew how to network it. And I could play it on a single computer and then I networked the computers together. And I brought the whole company down for a week and it was called Doom, the BFG. <laughs> and so we were, 
using the BFG between offices and screaming and yelling. We had stereo sound at the time. We thought we were killing it. And that was because of Windows 3.11. And I uh, knew how to run uh, Microsoft workgroups. So that was kind of really a changing point. And then the next one is I, when I was at CB, was introduced to a great client that everyone thought was going to be, you know, and I honestly think they're the original hyperscaler. You got mail, AOL. And I think the real key is, even as a young professional, being invited into the room and being around really smart people, listening and absorbing and interpreting that. The same thing being with Peter, whether I was with Peter Gross, you know, Al Nielsen, Matt Korn at AOL, those guys. I mean, and you don't know what's happening when it's happening. That's the real key I've learned. And as I've got, as I've gotten older, you have to sometimes smell the roses and look around what's happening because you get down into the myopic view of what you're doing. So those are kind of things that, you know, kind of inspired me. And then from that, I just been, you know, able to do a lot of great deals. I think the other one is too, you have to, you know, pay attention to those key turning points. When you're sitting in front of guys who are managing hundreds of millions of dollars to billions of dollars to trillions of dollars, and they're asking you to do something, you have to put them in position to make decisions. They're not asking you to make the decision, even if you think they are. They just want the information to be able to make the decision. Sometimes you don't know what the final decision points are, but you're giving them multi-decision points from a real estate perspective. Uh, Yeah. And so in the the 90s, not necessarily I want to date you or date any one of us over here, but in the early 90s, World Wide Web, the technology, Windows 3.1, it was still so like up in the air. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Are we ever going to be a connected world? And for somebody in the real estate business or, or what you were doing at that point in time, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a major leap of faith into something that's going to drastically change the world. Was it just having that conversation with Peter Gross and Alan and Brian that uh, said, okay, I believe in this. It's going to be a new world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this leap of faith and move into that direction or, or, or focus more on it. What was it? Uh, yes and no, right? So then we had this calamity happening called the dot-com bust. And I met this gentleman who was the first, you know, colo neutral provider, Hussein Fateh, down the street from AOL. And I remember very well sitting um, in a restaurant with him down at New York Avenue in Washington, D.C., talking about what he was doing and having basically starved because of the dot-com bust. Overnight, I remember when a major deal that we were doing for cable and wireless evaporated before March of 2001. This was in January, and it's coming up on the anniversary of almost 21 years. It was roughly January, I think, 17th. And it was a pretty simple deal point that killed it. It was about the conduit rights in the ground to get to the building, but it unplugged everything that we were doing with them, and the music stopped for years. And then sitting with Hussein, and he was like, you, ought, you know, you ought to uh, think about what we're doing, maybe even uh, work th- with us. And I, was, and I said, probably the dumbest thing I've ever said. I don't know if this thing, the internet is really real. 
And to this day, yeah, if you look at LinkedIn, right, there's there's all those postings about like that. The the article that everyone keeps on posting is, you know, the internet is just a fad. I don't remember if it was Newsweek or, or Time. Yeah. Yeah. But they, there were there were a number of articles about whether the internet was just a fad at that time. Now, that kind of you know, it, looks, it, it sounds ridiculous. But when you're in it, in the thick of it, you know, you, it, you'd be crazy not to question whether, you know, maybe it was just a passing fad and it just was, uh, right. oh, it, it, it just blew up as fast as it took off. Well, you know, I, as I say, you know, when money evaporates, it does make you question things, you know, same thing as, well, you know, the current environment that we're in, it makes you question things. But, you know, I will tell you, Mr. Fathy reminds me every time I see him about my comment. He's a genius. He's a rock star, you know? So that that's another, you know, it's all these critical data points along the career that makes the career. It's not a single one, but when you see it happening, you're like, I don't know, maybe it's not that bad. And then you got to remember, it really didn't come back until 2006. I think really was the origin of the industry. And it really started taking off in 09, okay? And in every year, it's almost doubled since that. I think I'm really good now at slowing down to go faster because now I realize some of the moments that are happening before when you're younger, you're trying to go fast and you're not necessarily recognizing what's happening. Well, you have now the benefit of perspective, benefit of of wisdom, of having lived through some of those things, which you can't possibly teach in school. You know, you can teach the history, but there's nothing quite like living through the history and getting past it and learning those, learning those lessons. Right. And like Nabil was saying, you know, I'll tell you another critical one was this crazy thing. Mark Andreessen, you know, created Mosaic, right? It inspired me so much. I, I have it. I'll have to find it sometime. It's in my basement in boxes. Believe it or not, I think I called, I think it was Morgan Stanley underwrote it. I called Morgan Stanley up on the IPO and asked for a prospectus. And they're like, well, we can't give that to you. You have to have X millions of dollars to invest. I'm like, yeah, I got it. Believe it or not, they sent me the original hard copy prospectus. I kind of treasure it. It's kind of junk. You know, it's on like onion paper. How many people have the original prospectus of Mosaic? <laughs> you should you can probably sell that uh to Andreessen, we can we can reach out to him on behalf of the Nomad Futurists and see if he wants to get that exactly. that idea to come on the podcast. So, what are you doing today? What's what's happening in your world today? How to have, what, what's going on? Yeah, so two two critical things. I do private real estate advising for my clients, whether it's real estate acquisition, development, disposition, as well as colo. That's under a brand called DC Advisors. And then, secondly, something I started. Coming up on five years ago, DC Connects, which is really just a fun, uh, happy hour, a group of people. Very similar. I was going through some health, nothing uh, life-threatening, but it was pretty significant. And I hadn't had a beer in a while. And I called my friends up. I said, let's go to the brewery right down the mountain from where I live and shoot the BS. And one of my friends called me up along the way. And he said, I got something confidential. I want to run by you. And I'm like, let's sit down. He's like, where do you want to do it? I says, I'm going to be at Dirk Farming in a few minutes before other people, but I'll break off and let's do it. So six of us sat down. And believe it or not, that idea was cultivated about two to three years prior and none of my friends wanted to do it. And then for Christmas, we had our first annual Christmas party, 300 to 350 people with a lot of being the DC Alley Cats. 
So it's really evolved into something really fun and personal. You know, I so think it's it, something it, that uh, is it is it infrastructure build outs. What's uh, what does DC Connects do? Social networking for data center and IT professionals. Pretty simple. Instead of just doing it, you know, what I'll say in the millennial world, right? On the web, it's going back face to face. You know, I always find that if you have a couple beers with things that people will say, you know. <laughs> well, do the nexus, nexus of the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you never know who's going to show up. You know, that's the really cool thing. I've had people who showed up, you know, private equity friends who run multi-billion dollar funds to, you know, people who just got fired and who's not too happy. And they need a beer just as much as the guy who's running, you know, a private equity firm, you know. And you really get down to brass tacks, getting to know people and having a lot of fun and talking about what's happening in the industry instead of just, you know, reading about it. A lot of this stuff happens you know, in the back doors, you know, it's no different whether you're doing it at a brewery or on a golf course. I don't golf. I suck at golf. Why not do it in a brewery or a vineyard? And, you know, lastly, that, that the most fun part about it is we integrated, you know, having our uh, spouses involved. Total different dynamic. The second time I ever did it, we had 16 and it was amazing. And I paid the second half of the wine tap. You ready? 16 people, second half. 22 bottles of wine. Oh my God. That's impressive. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm no mathematician. I think it's more than a bottle per person. Uh, yeah, right. The, uh, the, so in the last two years, obviously we've been in pandemic time. Yeah. We're entering our third year. You know, there's been so much talk really more on the societal element of it with how it impacts children and whatnot, but focusing on how it impacts business, like not being as as personally interacting with you know your clients your colleagues not going to the office anymore not going to as many you know conferences networking all that stuff i would imagine you have um some perspective on how that impacts you know getting business done and and, and whatnot so could you share your thoughts yeah my my first thought would be 2018 prepared us for this you know calamity known as the pandemic if 2018 had not had so much demand and absorption and build out that we would not have had it. And it's not just 2018, it's 2016, so on and so forth. Brought forward these technologies, whether it's um, Microsoft team meetings, Zoom, you, you name it. You know, back in the day, everyone used Citrix, you know, I, I used it. But it allowed to, you know, create somewhat of a interpersonal relationship. I think it's really valuable. The real kid gets down to is we're social creatures of habit. We like to see people. We like to interact with people. Doing it by, you know, telecon is good, but especially in my business, there's nothing like seeing real estate, you know? And just to go go back to like what I've done, you know, I drive all over a crazy place to go see real estate. The real key is, you know, having a poker face. Sometimes you see things and you're like, this is it. And owners don't sometimes know it. And the beauty is I've had an opportunity to work on some assignments that's very creative, unlike what I did before. Had Just give you a quick overview. Had a client contact me, wanted me to do a broker opinion of value, which means, you know, cut through the BS and really give them a personal valuation of a piece of property that had a brokerage firm representing it. 
but had a confidential client send a non-solicitation to them for uh, to purchase it. And they asked me my thoughts. I ran analysis and they're like, are you trying to kill the deal? And I'm like, well, what would make you think that? Well, you've never come up with the higher number. You're always on the lower number. Well, my pers- professional side has changed. I can tell you what the real value is. Just to tell you, let's say somewhere between seven and $900,000 was the unsolicited offer. The broker had 1.2 to 1.3. I was one four to one. The gentleman thought I was trying to kill the deal, thought I was trying to get into the deal. I told him, no, that's not what my agreement says. I'm just going to do this from a fee basis. And then he called me later, about six months later, and he said, that was great advice. We've accepted the offer at two plus million dollars. So really unlocking the value on both sides now is what I do. That's, you know, kind of the futuristics that I can now do. When you're just on one side of the P&L, you know, think of it no different than the attorneys. You have plaintiffs and defendants. One thinks someone's completely innocent. One thinks someone's completely guilty. Unlock it. We talked about COVID-19 and how it's transformed mm-hmm. business for you as well, where you want to be, or your business side is more in person. You want to be able to see people in the eyes and have the human interaction versus the virtual world that we've been living in the last two years. Mm-hmm. What do you think of some of the positive impacts that have come out of COVID-19 on a broader basis? Broader basis, I think it's brought a lot of things forward. The operational side of data centers, I think the, you know, the AI side is going to come much faster than everyone thinks. It's going to reduce the human element even faster. Unfortunately, I, I think that's not necessarily good for employment, but from an operational standpoint, I think it will be tremendous for those who invest in it. So I think that's something really important to watch. Everything everyone's doing from device and control, what's happening in the data center, instead of having someone go down, you know, a data center hall and look at a UPS, all that monitoring is going to be brought to the fore and that human interaction is going to be removed. The biggest challenge gets to be is, does the AI really expose the human element? The brain is a magnificent engine. It can multitask and think things through, not just linear. This is the challenge that we've seen with, you know, like AWS losing the East Coast cloud availability. Some of it works, some of it doesn't work perfectly. And I think as a society, we've got to be prepared for that. That to me is the single thing that is probably something that's really great potential, but it scares the hell out of me. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was, I was just to say that the most, the best preventative maintenance tool in a data knows, and they've never yeah. Uh, able to replicate that in, in AI because you know you kind of smell uh, burning powers of life. You smell something that might feel up that isn't triggering you know some lead, some you know some 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 zero and one somewhere that's 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 you know only designed to look at you know specific thresholds, need some level of human interaction. So I'm actually well, let, the- me give you, let me give you a great let me give you a quick great example. We're going through all this crazy times. And I heard a great presentation by locally here, seven by 24 DC. And a gentleman was in the situation room for 9-11, right? Everything worked perfectly. Think of that, over 4,000 planes, no human lives lost. And they did it in roughly hours to get all those planes down. 
because it, they, you took the air traffic controllers in NORAD and integrated it. They also let international nations know what was going on. That is as complex as we've ever seen anything ever happen in such a dramatic time and a point in our, our nation or globally, and nobody got hurt. Right. And well, plenty of people got hurt, just not not the ones that right. were that pressure to the building. So, so just Correct. to add to that point, I think, uh, you know, Phil and I had this conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago regarding artificial intelligence. I think my focus for 2022 is to reword it, wordsmith it, and change it from artificial intelligence to actionable intelligence. I love that. Whereby you still have an human interaction piece that we are still the ones that are eventually making the final decision. And just to add to a couple of things that you said, Alan, I think- hey, you, know, I mean, you don't have to change any of the stickers because it's still an A. Exactly, <laughs> AI. <laughs> Um, just, just to add to what you said earlier. Can, can you hold on one second? I need to go to the PTO and make sure I get that trademark. <laughs> <laughs> so just to add to what you had said earlier regarding, um, opportunities or lack thereof and job elimination, yeah. I, I do get it, but on the same note, we need to recognize that technology is going to be creating tons and tons of more jobs. So as nomad futurist and as you know, one of the focuses for this podcast and the foundation to demystify technology. It's a means yeah. to encourage people with the talent pool that exists in other verticals and businesses to help better the technology and technology platforms. So those jobs are going to be yeah. created. We have seen it time and time again. Farming, for instance, is not how it used to be back in the day. It's significantly automated. That does not mean that all those jobs went away. There's different right. kinds of jobs. So for the They'll just be displaced or moved. That's all it is. Exactly. So for the listeners, there's plenty of opportunity. It is the smallest, largest growing industry, and we're going to continue to see significant growth over the next few years. And I think uh, one of the benefits of these types of conversations, really, and what we've tried to parrot for the last, you know, two-ish years that we've been doing the podcast is that what's unique about this industry is how there's there's so many areas that you can get involved in that are exciting. So you think, you know, I think people that are on the outside of the critical infrastructure industry, think of it as, you know, scientists with lab coats and computers and computer geeks and all that stuff. And there's plenty of that. But really, I mean, if you think about it from your perspective, on the real estate side, certainly on the business side, on the legal side, on the on the trade side, you know, within the data center, working on the computers and the applications and all that. I mean, there's just the kind of sky's the limit in terms of what element of our industry can really speak to people's unique interests? And I think that that's, that's the, the thing that people need to focus on is not, not having a job just to work, but trying to follow whatever one's passion is. And the, the, the critical infrastructure industry as a whole is unique in the breadth of just involvement that you can have that speaks to so many different areas of interest that it's one of the few industries where you could actually follow your passion and do what you love and, you know, go with a bunch of your friends for beer and then come up with, you know, a great business. Bill, I couldn't have said it any better. I totally agree with you. Here's the biggest challenge. I think the industry says that it's all about stems. I love stems. I'm not a stems guy. Okay. But there's a lot of people in the industry that are non-stems people. Okay. So it's a great collaboration. Technology, engineering, and math, just for. Correct. Yeah. 
<laughs> but and I will tell you, we, we're in need of the the most critical aspect, which is the left and right side brains driving this industry. Just can't be one side because people see things totally different from different perspectives. That's probably something I've embraced more than anything else because I'm like, wow, I didn't think of it that way. Well, that's what makes this industry, you know, unique and and a lot of fun to be in because you've got all these different perspectives and opinions. So, Alan, you've got such a phenomenal career. I mean, you know, it's the 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 what you have been able to accomplish over the last few years is immaculate. What skill, if you were to narrow down one or two in particular, that you've been able to develop that's actually helped you to be successful and get mm. where you're at in your career? Mm. Great question. You know, I think the real, the real, you know, I'm a real estate and I'm a finance guy looking in, in economics, looking at a macro and the micro, bringing them together. One of my favorite and greatest all-time professors, Walter Williams, challenging as hell. If you read anything about Walter Williams, he challenged people. I think that's one thing that I think this industry in our country and globally, we need to challenge people make them uncomfortable in a professional manner, but drive for the operations of the business in professional. There's a lot of people that just don't want that kind of challenging environment anymore. From where I came from, it's really what I think is most appreciative in my life. I've had people challenge me, put me in very uncomfortable situations, let alone not being a STEMS guy. I'm going like, what the heck are we talking about? But I've got a great network of people that I could go to confidentially. I'd say, what are they talking about? I'm not an engineer, electrical or mechanical. Explain it to me. They'd explain it to me and I could sit in an executive uh, management meeting without them and I could explain it to them. Uh, I think that's the biggest challenge that happened in Y2K. CIOs and CTOs thought they were going to control the boardroom. Guess what? Because of the collapse of the dot-com, the CFO became more powerful because it didn't come to fruition. But I think some of this lack of professional decorum needs to come to the forefront. And as things become driven, whether it's, you know, AI, machine language, all those, AV, and AR, all of them are going to really challenge people. We have to be prepared to one, embrace the technology, let let the technology do its work, but also be human interactive with it because it can really spiral out of control. I mean, I think that's the one thing that, that you know, is a common thread with with the conversations that we've had the best, certainly the conversations that I have with younger folks that, that ask similar questions, like what is what is one characteristic I should use that, uh, that I wouldn't think of on my own? And it you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's human nature to not want to seem like you don't know something. So, you know, you just want to kind of guess everyone to death. So somebody says something like I go to a mechanic. I don't know how to fix a car, right? I go to a mechanic and he says I need something. I'm like, yeah, OK, yes, you need to you need to fix the flabbersham. Yeah, I think flabbersham seems like it's probably uh, needs fixing. You know what you're talking about. You're the expert. But in reality, you know, you shouldn't be afraid in a boardroom, in, per, in, in in your personal life, in any context to say, you, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old. Like, I, I don't know what right. you're talking about. Uh, does, does that, now, obviously it opens you up to, to potentially be vulnerable, like you don't know something. So there's an opportunity yep. there for someone that might not understand the topic that they're saying 
to overcompensate them and say, oh, you don't understand that? You're stupid or make fun of you or make you feel bad for not knowing it. But that is how you uh, kind of identify who knows what they're talking about and who would take the time to explain it to you so that you understood it fundamentally. And it's that it's it's such a human, more personality type issue than it is uh, anything that you learn in school. It's It's this fundamental approach like fight or flight kind of thing where you just want everyone to think that you're, and in reality, this is, this is, this is, this is going to get me in trouble. Everyone's stupid. Everyone. Yeah. One person, this is the one year anniversary of the, the hour having bit surf on, on our podcast. We did it January 6th last year. I remember because he also lives in Virginia and the insurrection was happening outside and we were talking about it on the podcast. <laughs> um, he's not stupid. Everybody else, but Dr. Bin served. We're so all stupid. We don't know everything. How could you know everything? Yeah. Well, you know, so, you know, it, it's funny that, you know, I shouldn't say funny, but it's, it's amazing. Heard him speaking numerous times, okay? One of the most riveting presentations I've ever heard was a former colleague of his and still, or maybe probably still, Bob Kahn. Right. Bob Kahn came into MBTC, gave a presentation with no slides. And I, I even thought, is this going to be the most boring presentation? And he and Heidi Hayden developed TCIP 55 plus years ago. It's flexible. It's dynamic. It still works today. And I was, I was riveted listening to him and he didn't have any slides. And I think Bob's now, you know, 80. I felt like I was sitting on the forefront of technology 55 years ago. Just so to, to me, that is really impressive. It's, it's so different when somebody talks to you about something in this kind of matter of fact fashion. You know, I know yes. been, this is the last thing I'll say about Ben. was on our thing. And he, does, he doesn't refer to things as, you know, SMTP or TCPIP. He refers to them by their names because like they said in that movie, Twins, he named them. So it's just, yeah. it's a whole different, like, it's just not, it's not the same. We're not talking in the same level. And if you ask Vint, to explain to you what TCPIP was, there is no question. He wouldn't be like, oh, how could you not with that? And not know what this is. You don't know, history. He would tell you, like, he would just write it on a piece of paper and say, oh, that's what it means. Because right. that's how you can differentiate between someone that actually fundamentally understands the topic they're talking about and someone that's just trying to confuse you into shaking your head so they can right. rock a fancy title and move on. So I, I have to tell you what I would tell you is, Try to embrace the moment when you're in front of people. You may not know that you're really in front of somebody that's really, really super smart, right? Because they may be breaking it down so simplistic, like a event or a, you know, Bob Kahn, right? And then you realize, whoa, these guys really get it, but they can simplistically articulate it to anyone of any background. That to me is brilliance. Someone who talks over or through you isn't necessarily a smart person. Right. Uh, I use the same, the same comparison is like when, uh, when Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about things in space. It's just done in this kind of conversational way. If you're using large words in textbook language, you just don't get it. You're just trying to confuse everyone. And it's not, it's not at all. All right. I'm done. Yeah. So, you know, just to tell you, like transfer that into, you know, deals I've done. I've said things that, you know, to clients that, you know, probably shouldn't have said, you know, great example, work with a trillion dollar, you know, mutual fund that was doing their own colo deal because they knew that 
the economies of scales were probably more beneficial for them to go into someone else's building versus continue to build their own building at tens of millions of dollars per megawatt. Well, it goes back to what we were saying, Nabil, you know, is so the devices that are going to go AI are going to, you know, change the job parameters. And I said to, you know, this executive, I said, well, it's really simple. And and way I look at it is why do you need someone in telecom and security? You're going to pay for that. We got out at a meeting and the guy says, you can't ever say that again because they're going to lose their job. Okay. The question is, are they going to be displaced or are they going to be adaptable? I think that's the real key is, are they adaptable? Do you have adaptable skills to be used somewhere else within the organization in the enterprise? Because I looked at it and going, you know what? I can save you a ton of money because, you know, Joe and, you know, Susan are displaceable. I didn't mean it um, in a bad manner that, but can they be adapted because they're not going to be continuing in the data center? It sounds like that you have been censored How does it feel like to embrace your own voice and be you? Oh, that's a great question. Great question. Let it rip, Alan. Uh, yeah, it's it, look, it, it's 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 challenging, right? You have to take credence for your own uh, words and actions. You know what I mean? That's what I like about what I do today. You know, what I do today is you know solely for for me and my clients. I don't have a large organization. I don't have partners. I have to communicate with what's going on because they're just concerned about getting the deal and getting paid. I can do things more flexible, more dynamic, but I'm held responsible for doing those deals and transactions. So did you ever feel like, I mean, so we have spent, I mean, I think all of us over here, uh, have spent a significant amount of time in corporate America. Do you feel like, I, I oh, Phil hasn't, Phil is corporate America. <laughs> not that I'm not by corporate America, but I am in the, I am the antithesis of corporate America. Um, I mean, there is this, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting when I've gone through those as well in my career, mm -hmm. you know, saying the right thing or saying it for the right audience, not to hurt someone's feeling. I have felt a significant amount of pressure relief from me when I can embrace my voice. I can be myself. I can tell you what I feel, how I feel, and where do I see things? Did you have a common feeling like that as well? Like to be yourself and to embrace your voice when you were able to extract yourself from the censorship? Early on in my career, I, I, I did not. Because I, I was trying to find my purpose within my career, my profession, because there wasn't very few people doing it. So very simply, you could, you could be out on the plank by yourself. But what I didn't recognize is people were in need of my interpretation and my knowledge and recommendations for them. Once you start recognizing that, you do become comfortable. You will say things. And the real key is sometimes you just got to cut through the BS. You know, I did a project frustrated me. They couldn't make the right decisions. And I would read about it in the public papers for the federal government. Still frustrates me. There's things that are in this, you know, world that people should do and no one should know about. And, and if I'm a guy in that meeting and I know what's going on and then I read about it in a paper, I'm like, that's frustrating. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or 
better yet to where you're going is I know certain things that are happening in the market and I connected dots, one plus one, and it's three. My clients hire me not for one plus one. They hire me for three. And I've said things, I even presented it, and I was censored and told I could not say that. I had to scrub my social media from it. That is heart-wrenching. So, so, you know, we, Bill and I have a, have like a year podcast. One of the things we, we touch on in that is this notion that really came to the forefront during the pandemic, great resignation. You know, a lot of people leaving um, their corporate jobs because they didn't need to go to an office anymore because they could, you know, move to different parts of the country. But in reality, because there was, it seems as though there's this, again, em- embracing of, of lifestyle versus, you know, being a, a, a cog in a wheel. And maybe on the mm. inside, this embracing of, you know, the, the contractability of work, you know, the ability of being, you know, a, a part-time C-level type, type executive where, you know, these companies have contracts in place with some of their top tier talent, as opposed to, you know, having to, having to have them internally. How much of the, the experience that you had in corporate America do you think you know, might be related to this idea of a great resignation, if at all? Another great big question. I think there's a lot of it. And I, I, I like the term the great resignation. There's a lot of people that are going to continue to put their head in the sand. I think it takes courage not to put your head in the sand. We see it in all aspects of life now. I think we're going to see probably the biggest, you know, courage is going to be people who have battled COVID. There's some people that wear it as a badge of honor and some people feel it's dishonorable. It's about life and living, you know, and moving on. It's not about whether you have been vaccinated or unvaccinated, or if you got COVID or you didn't get COVID, right? We've been through, you know, this would be probably the biggest thing that, you know, gets me is the greatest generation survives horrific things. They didn't raise their hand for recognition. They moved on with life. Uh, I think that's what, in general, what we have to do as a society. And that's also going to be the same thing with technology. Going to have to embrace it. Going to have to move on with life. Thanks you to, uh, back to perspective. You know, I saw this, it'll be the last thing I say. You know, I saw this, uh, I see it there all the time. It'll not, this is no way this will be the last thing I say. But there's another kind of LinkedIn meme that was circulating that suggests that, you know, sometimes people feel as though, you know, their grandparents who had a touch and don't understand, you know, how, how our uh, lives are these days. And they looked at the, I, the notion of someone born in 1900 that, you know, went through when they were 18 years old, there was a pandemic and, and at that time in 1918, the Spanish flu, and then they got through that. And then 10 years later, there was, you know, the, the Great Depression and there was a world war and then there was a second world war. And then, they, then there was a Korean war, then there was a Vietnam war. And, you know, they were in their 70s. During the Vietnam War, during that lifetime in the 70s, in their 70s, there was never a period of just, you know, calm, relaxation. And you see our culture today, to a certain extent, like getting frustrated when the Amazon delivery shows up a day late and thinking that that's like a real hardship. Now, I don't want to suggest that there isn't real hardship out there, but if you look at, you know, the, 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 the time that we're alive, and, you know, the, the, the industrial benefits and the technology revolution and, 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 you know, how 
to a certain extent, much easier our lives are logistically, at least in this country, in this time, in this place, compared to previous generations. You know, you would think that perspective would would make people, you know, just, you know, be thankful for where they are and when they're there. I think we've just gotten lazy and so comfortable and taken everything for granted that. This is going to be, this is going to be really <laughs> careful about it. So, yeah. Um, is, I know your life is hard. I get it. I think it's work too. It's just that their lives were hard. Yeah. Yeah. All right. No, I, I, I'm totally on board with you. <clears throat> All right. You've got a great, great career, a great story, Alan. It's kind of interesting to see how you transition into data center space with uh, your core competency or experience being in economics and uh, finance and real estate to, to where you're at today. You've done, done great things. What career advice would you give the younger generation as we start sure. trying to bridge the gap that we've got a lack of talent pool, that it's not sexy enough for we don't talk about it as being a profession with the next generation. What are some of the career advices that you can think of and tell the younger generation that's following the podcast? That, that as a, absolutely hit my nerve. I love it. That not every job should be white collar. And it's not necessarily a blue collar. It's a skilled job on both sides. And especially where I live, there's people that talk down because they think everybody should go to a certain school and come out with a certain profession. There's great skilled professions in the data centers making great money. The parents, I'm going to say just flat out what it is, are ignorant. They don't understand how much money people in skilled position are making because they don't want their little, you know, Johnny or Alan or what have you turning a wrench. That person who's turning a wrench, I know those people who now are in, you know, executive management, skilled positions in the management meetings, making these critical decisions. And they're making a lot more money than those parents that are talking to their children about what the job should be. I don't think that's the right way to approach it. I think it should be all encompassing. This is the beauty of our industry. It's all encompassing. Everybody's, you know, important. So that's one thing. I also think, you know, from what I've learned is embrace a lot of different people. Wait to hear this. I'm in two coffee groups. I'm the oldest guy in one. And another one, I'm the youngest one. So I get to see full circle of a lot of different perspectives. I think there, there's a really good balance of that and encouraging people and being transparent and vulnerable. Phil said it earlier, vulnerable. Letting people know what you know and giving them the viewpoint. I also believe in documentating it. I've got a... Uh, series of thoughts and notes, Tuckerisms, that I uh, have written down for my kids. I share them. I put one on LinkedIn the other day. Everyone can start, but not everyone finish finishes. You must finish. That was installed in me by my grandfather. And if you think about everything in life, anyone can start anything, but the people finish. So... <laughs> Hope that gives you a perspective. Those are things that are meaningful to me. It's not about the education or, you know, where you go. It's what you do with it. Wonderful. 
I'll give you two thoughts and then and then we can wrap it up. One is that Alan is actually the generational bridge since he's in, in a, a group where he's the oldest and a group when he's the youngest. So he is the generation, generational bridge we've been looking for. And two, business idea, fortune cookie company where you put Tuckerisms instead of fortunes inside fortune cookies for Chinese restaurants. You can have that one for free. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.